Birdnote presents. So we're going to go looking for sage grouse in the snow. We've had uh, about six inches last night or the night before. It's about maybe 10 degrees now, about five degrees when I left my house this morning. It's about eight o'clock. I just crossed the Columbia River. Um, just a dreary gray day, but we will be uh, trudging through the snow on the hunt for some sage grouse this morning. So fingers crossed we see some and I'm actually able to record that if we do. All right. It's an adventure, right? We'll see what happens. I'm Ashley Ahern, and this is Grouse, a show about the most controversial bird in the West and what it's taught me about hope, compromise, and life in rural America. It's been two years since I made the jump from city life to sagebrush country. I'm still flailing around out here most days. And I've developed a minor obsession with sage grouse. These weird, wonderful birds are in a lot of trouble, and there are a lot of people wrestling with the question of what to do about that. I'm still trying to wrap my head around what is going on with this bird and why it's such a big deal. But today, I just want to see one up close. Hi! How are you? I meet up with Michael Schroeder at his place in a little town about four hours northeast of Seattle in the Columbia River, and we jump in his car to go find some grouse. There aren't many of these birds in Washington state, fewer than a thousand of them left actually. But this dude knows where they sleep. He's a biologist with the State Department of Fish and Wildlife who's been studying sage grouse in Washington for decades. We're driving through miles of wide open, kind of boring, rocky country, just wheat fields all around us dotted with pockets of sagebrush and these giant boulders the size of farmhouses that the glaciers left here after the last ice age about 10 to 15,000 years ago. So you end up with a big fragmented landscape, which is why we still have quite a bit of wildlife, including sage grouse. Because it basically wasn't perfect farming. It definitely was not perfect farming. And, uh, and even when you look in the wheat fields, you see piles of rocks. Um, that represents 100 plus years of history, farmers from the past, for starting by hand, you know, when, when, when people first homesteaded this country, moving the rocks by hand so that they could uh, uh, work the soil, plow the soil, and actually plant. And, uh, and you're seeing the remnants of that, those hundred you know, something years of history. I look out the window at graying, weathered farmhouses decaying into the wheat fields around us. People came here to tame this landscape. Under the Homestead Act, the government would give you 160 acres. That was stolen from Native Americans, of course. And you could make a go of farming it. But it was really hard work. Michael's forebears homesteaded here, but they only stayed for a generation before moving on to greener pastures in Idaho and California. Their story isn't unique. If you could go back into, let's say, 1900, which is 120 years ago, there were more people living out here then than there are now. And I know it seems hard to believe, but if you imagine, all these quarter sections had a different family living on them because it was all homesteaded. And, and so in one mile of road, just we'd be driving by a farm here, a farm here, a farm here, a farm there. In just one mile, we'd drive by four farms. That was the beginning of trouble for the sage grouse. With more settlement came more hunting and more development and loss of habitat. But even back then, there were people worried about the plight of the sage grouse. 
there was this East Coast naturalist, conservationist, whatever you want to call the white men who would come west and collect samples and report back to, quote, civilization about what they found out here. Anyway, in 1916, this dude by the name of William T. Hornaday comes out and he falls in love with sage grouse. And he writes this bulletin addressed to states west of the Mississippi titled, Save the Sage Grouse from Extinction, a demand from, quote, civilization to the western states. And in it, he writes, We are issuing this final warning as a matter of duty to the people of the West for the benefit of their sons and grandsons, and also as a duty to the harassed and persecuted birds that cannot speak for themselves. It has become a case of now or never. Hornaday said it was a last call to limit hunting and development in order to save the cock of the plains, as sage grouse were called back then, from certain extinction. He loved these birds, and he was worried about them more than 100 years ago. He collected a whole bunch of sage grouse and turned them into skeletons, which are now in the Smithsonian. And it's, it's interesting to read some of his writings about this and you know the, the whole approach to conservation, because here we are, and we're still essentially talking about sage grouse. There were orders of magnitude more birds back when Hornaday was sounding the alarm in 1916. Sage-grouse populations have been in steady decline pretty much ever since, across the West. And Michael Schroeder is sort of a modern-day Hornaday. He recently wrote a paper with two other respected sage-grouse scientists that basically sounded the alarm once again about their declining numbers. They looked at the nine key Western states where sage-grouse still live, and they found that on average, almost half of the birds have disappeared in the past four years. And here in my home of Washington State, the birds are doing worse than just about anywhere else in the U.S. Yeah, so the, the current population is probably in the neighborhood of 700 to 800. For someone who doesn't study population genetics, is, is seven to 800 birds enough to, to survive? No, long term, no. Well, this is where I wanted to go. So we pull onto a dirt road covered in snow and surrounded by miles and miles of sagebrush. We're at the Sagebrush Flat Wildlife Management Area. And Michael parks the car and I look out the window at some wire fence next to us with these little pieces of plastic hanging from it at even intervals. I asked Michael what it was for and he said it's there to keep sage grouse from flying into the fences. Evidently, because their eyes are on the sides of their heads, they can't see right in front of them when they fly, so a lot of them die in collisions with barbed wire, especially during the mating season, when the males are a little bit distracted. Yeah. So you want to? Yeah. Want to go for a walk? Let's do it. What you'll see um, if birds are here, they'll just be wandering through this landscape finding sagebrush that appeals to them, eating the leaves of sagebrush, and then they'll walk on and find another sagebrush plant. But I think the part that always got me about grouse is that they don't leave in the winter. So like the winters get really tough in parts of the areas, you know, 30, 40 below, and the mountains with tons of snow, the plains, windswept plains with just, you know, hurricane force winds and snow. And these birds are out there. You know, it just amazes me that grouse can handle what they handle, and they do it year-round. And uh, other birds are gone, the grouse tough it out. Anyway, let's see if we can find some tracks. The fresh snow is maybe four inches deep, and there are coyote tracks crisscrossing it. And I'm looking and looking, just walking along, scanning the snow for anything that looks like... 
Well, actually, I don't even know what I'm looking for, to be honest, but not coyote. Ooh, what's this one? Is that more coyote here? Doesn't look like coyote. Oh, not a very distinct track, but it looks like it could be, it could be a grouse. Yeah, it's definitely a grouse. Really? Yep. Wait, did I just beat the scientist yeah, at finding the grouse well, tracks? that's not surprising. I'm not wearing my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody can see better than me nowadays. <laughs> but we should, uh, we should follow. Okay. The tracks are pretty small, and Michael thinks we're following a lone female. So the two of us are walking slowly through the snow, shoulders hunched, following these little sort of, um, they're almost shaped like a fleur-de-lis print. And they're meandering from sagebrush to sagebrush like a drunk. And I'm just holding my breath that we see a bird soon. She could be yards away from us right now. What'd you find? Sage grouse dropping. He squats down in the snow. See? Huh. It's kind of like a mustardy color. I would and expect it to be. And it's a little curved. So yeah, it is. And it's like a little mini miniature sausage shape. So we're actually, this bird is here today. Cool. So where? There he is. He kind of hung out there for a minute. Yeah. And then we lose it. Where it went, I don't know. Huh. Yeah, they just kind of disappeared. They went under there and then. Yeah, yeah. Obviously flew off. Uh-huh. We'll go back. Maybe we'll maybe we'll find something. Mm-hmm. So I'm trudging along behind Michael, thinking we've come all this way through the snow, the cold. This is my first reporting trip for this podcast, and I am nowhere. Like, maybe this is all for nothing. What am I even doing out here? So we get to this little rise in the landscape and look out on miles of sagebrush all around us, and we stand there together for a few minutes. Ah... <sighs> I'd love to ask if you're not too cold or if you don't mind no. standing for a minute. I have a couple. This is just a great place sure. to be having this conversation. Um, the question I've been asked so many times since I started telling people I'm making a podcast about sage grouse is, why would anybody care about sage grouse? <laughs> Most of us will never see them. They don't live close to urban hubs where a lot of people would be listening to this program. So how do I help me? Well, and, and it's... Basically, the sage grouse is sort of a, it's almost a representation of our history as a culture in Western North America. Um, and you can go back, you can go back to the late 1800s and early 1900s and look at how the West was developed. You can look at the cultures of the uh, Native Americans and their association with not only the land, but the wildlife, um, the role that animals like sage grouse played in their culture. We're going to do a whole episode centered around the importance of sage grouse for some Native American tribes, both historically and today. So stay tuned for that. In terms of settler history, though, sage grouse were mentioned in the journals of some of the first explorers who came out here. So you go back 150 years, and actually you can even make it more than 200 with Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark were writing about sage grouse. A whole bunch of times they wrote about sage grouse. They had 80-some observations of grouse that they talked about in their journals. The birds provided food for hungry explorers braving the West, and then the homesteaders that followed them. But Michael says more than that, the bird is really a symbol of a whole mindset, an attraction that so many Americans have to these big, open spaces. There's something about that, because the grouse is a creature that needs landscapes. It needs big landscapes to survive. And this is one of those landscapes. Uh, it's just, they're just an amazing animal. And then you throw in the, 
you know, land management issues, whether it's energy development, livestock, wildfire, all those sorts of issues that, that we're now sort of dealing with. There's no, there's no species that reflects our Western experience more than sage grouse. So I one, don't know. one of the big reasons I quit my job at NPR um, in Seattle was because I got tired of covering the environment and having it always be about the economy and jobs versus conservation demands and, and do we save sage grouse or spotted owls or whatever the, the right. species du jour was. I was kind of in the middle of covering that and I felt like that the way we frame that is fraught and that's why I, I totally, wanted to spend time. I totally, this has been a pet peeve of mine for years. I mean, I really hate the fact that we we save something because it has value or because it has some like economic value or because we think there could be some medicine in you know maybe sage grouse are going to lead us to some cure for humans you know and i don't i that's not why i'm here that's not why i'm interested in sage grouse we can't base all our decisions on economic indicators if we if if it was all about economy you wouldn't be, there wouldn't be poetry. I mean, it's like, if it was all about economy, they wouldn't have gardens. I mean, I mean, people wouldn't plant flowers. I mean, this is like, I mean, you might as well make us not human to say that we're gonna pay attention to ec- economy and nothing else. I mean, I mean, I would really become a pessimist if it all became about economy. It could not be about economy. If it's only about economy, then I don't wanna live in this culture anymore. This is not for me. Huh. You thought I wouldn't talk much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> Out here in the middle of nowhere. We start walking back through the snow, and I'm smelling the sage and thinking about all the things Michael said. And then suddenly there's a clatter of wings up ahead. Oh. It's our sage grouse. Oh my god. And a bird takes off about 25 yards away from us. Well, there you go. You fly it over the horizon, and it's alone. That could have been our female. Huh. I couldn't get a good look at her. She was small, brown, wings in a sort of horseshoe shape, and she coasted low over the sagebrush without making a sound. No call, no bright coloring. She was actually pretty nondescript. We get back in Michael's car and head for home. And as we're driving, I ask him what he thinks is the biggest threat to sage grouse. And I was thinking he'd say oil and gas drilling or cattle grazing or wildfire. And we'll get into all that in later episodes. But you know what he said? Apathy. That people don't care enough to do anything or take a stand for this bird. But if I'm being honest, seeing that bird was a bit anticlimactic. I wanted another chance to feel that deep connection and really reverence Michael clearly has for these birds. I asked him when he'd be out in the field again, and he started talking about the spring mating season. Every year, birds gather at the same mating sites, or leks, they're called. And the males do these ornate dances to woo the ladies. And biologists like Michael count the number of males and estimate the overall population based on those numbers. Every year I go into the spring and think, is this going to be the year the population has collapsed? And so until I actually go out and get a few let counts and find out how good the birds are doing, I'm always completely insecure about it and thinking, oh my gosh, is this going to be the year? 
it's just going to be the year. For Michael, the lead-up to the spring count is by far the most anxious he gets all year. It's the waiting period before he knows basically how the birds are doing. Are they going to make it for another year? And so when the spring comes and you go out and you, you go out and you find, oh boy, the birds are back and you can just kind of wipe the sweat off your brow and think, well, we made it another year. <laughs> it is it is a pretty scary time until, until they show up. So, yeah. Can I come out with you in the spring? Sure, sure, yeah. So it's January now. That's so, a, so yeah, I'll see you in January. It's uh, yeah, middle middle-ish of January. So middle two months. Okay. I mean, it's hard to believe. It's like coming quick. I have a lot of reporting to do between this snowy stretch of midwinter and the start of the spring mating season, but I promise we'll come back to Michael and visit Alec together to find out how the birds are doing. We've got some other ground to cover first, though. Next episode, fire in sagebrush country is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And last summer, it was suddenly personal. I can see the smoke over the hill in this huge billowing brown cloud, and we're frantically packing the airstream and um, trying to get, think about what it is in our lives that we need to take with us. Wildfire is now something I lose sleep over at night during the dry summer months. And it's a big problem for sage grouse, too. This podcast was edited by Whitney Henry Lester. Sound design by Liza Yeager. Grouse was produced in partnership with BirdNote Presents and was made possible with support from Jim and Birta Faulkner. I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks for listening.